This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm David Hamilton Golland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Nikita Braginsky, a 2019 to 2020 Harvard University Music Department fellow about his book, Mathematical Music from Antiquity to Music AI, which he wrote at Humboldt University, Berlin. Nikita, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me to this uh, podcast. I'm um, very glad that we're recording it. Me too. Uh, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Um, Yeah, so uh, I am a musicologist, uh, first and foremost. I cannot claim to be uh, anything else, really. But I'm a musicologist um, who has a very special interest in technology and uh, mathematics. Um, So... After studying uh, musicology in Cologne, Germany, I specifically went to uh, a department to write my PhD where I could uh, learn about technology. So this was at Humboldt University. Um, uh, Yeah, and and so basically I've continued uh, looking at musical technology ever since that time, ever since my PhD. Very good. Uh, Let's uh, jump right in then and talk about the book. Uh, What is mathematical music? Uh, Yeah, what is mathematical music? So um, this is um, not... um, musical mathematics, and this is not uh, um, use of uh, music in mathematics or mathematics in music. It's really mathematical music, so music structured by mathematics. And what do I mean by that? So, well, basically I mean that uh, when people create music, when people try to understand music, to analyze it, there's always a certain amount of mathematics going on in their heads. 
And this um, has been like that for centuries. This is the uh, one of the arguments. Uh, and, well, uh, basically I present um, a very long story of uh, mathematical music or how music really became mathematical in the end. Okay, uh, so I, I want to give our listeners just a little bit of a better understanding of what we're talking about here. Um, is it something as simple as as time and rhythm? I, I'm remembering a scene in the movie Amadeus, which is now oh, about 35 years old, where uh, he's sort of leaning over a pool table and tossing a, a pool ball against the opposite end of the table so that he can keep time as he writes uh, as he writes his well, his genius music that we've all come to appreciate in in uh, over the centuries, is that an example of 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 mathematical music? Or uh, tell us a little bit more about what it is that mm -hmm. you that you mean mm -hmm. here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this could be an example uh, because if um, um, in this um, scene. Which I have to say I don't remember very well, but <laughs> uh, judging from judging from what you you've uh, described, uh, so there's some sort of uh, geometry there, some sort of uh, um, structuring time through uh, movement in in some sort of geometrical way, and. Uh, yeah, uh, so this is an example, but um, I can offer, um, and I do offer in the book, uh, many, many different examples. So one of the um, earliest uh, and also maybe one of the best known um, is um, actually already happening um, in antiquity when... Um, people start to think about um, um, what is the right way to create a tuning for an instrument. Uh, yeah, and uh, so uh, they uh, start to use the mathematics of their time, uh, which is, uh, in this case, uh, division and multiplication. And uh, in the end, they end up with some theories which have survived um, until this day. And people who study this, I, I don't, but people who study this can read uh, some of the texts and can understand what people thought at that time uh, and which uh, mathematical uh, structures they used when uh, they were thinking about the best way to tune an instrument or to create a melody. So this so in, is uh, in, an example, yeah. Uh, so in a in some sense, it's it's something even as basic as how we divide a keyboard up and the 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 length of an interval, frankly, or the the size of an interval. You might say. Right, right. Uh, that's that's completely um, this uh, thing that I. Um, I was trying to describe, and uh, even uh, before there was uh, a keyboard instrument, uh, there was uh, a string 
uh, a court which you could divide and see with your eyes that you are using only the half of the length or one third and then you use your ears to see uh, how the sounds or, uh, and how these sounds go together uh, yeah so these are one of the things that have survived to this day in uh, in the musical theory uh, in the intervals as you said right very good um, let's talk a little bit about the structure of the book it is divided into two sections uh, continuities and possibilities can you speak a bit about that structure why you chose it and and what it does for the book Yes, sure. So, um, um, I wanted to do everything with the book. Uh, absolutely everything, write about the past and today's moment and the future. So, I created this uh, twofold uh, structure where in the second part uh, possibilities I um, write about what I think might happen in the future and even if it never happens we should maybe still try to think about it and uh, have an opinion about things that might happen do we want them to happen uh, or, or maybe uh, we don't. So I was thinking about uh, the future. But to think about future, one needs some sort of uh, foundation. And that's, I think uh, you as a historian uh, know that uh, better than anyone else. So I wanted to create a foundation for the reader uh, to think about the future. And this role is served by the first part of the book, Continuities, where I describe all this history, all this long, long history of uh, people using mathematically inspired ideas in some way in relation to music. So this is where this, uh, these two parts uh, come from. I see. Um, and I, I was I was also thinking when you were saying how you want to do everything. Uh, uh, this uh, there there's uh, <laughs> no shortage of ambition in 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 this book. It's uh, for for the sake of our readers, it is relatively short and uh, and a quick read. Um, it is uh, only 117 pages, and uh, the format is such that the end notes are at the end of each chapter rather than all together at the end of the book. Um, so that's 117 pages with all of the notes. Um, and yet it does cover an incredible amount of time, beginning with antiquity and ending uh, somewhere in the distant future with, with the predictions that you speak of. Now, in the first section, uh, continuities, you begin the chapters with the word since, as in since antiquity or since 1900. Uh, what is the reason for this rather than saying simply antiquity chapter or 20th century chapter? Uh, yeah, the, the reason uh, is um, a sort of an argument I want to make here. 
Um, and the idea is that uh, none of the things uh, that I described there uh, go away completely. Mm-hmm. So I, I could say this is what happened uh, in antiquity or this is what happened in the early modern period. Period. But um, instead I am trying to argue that this, this was the uh, thinking of that day, but it never went away completely. It continued to influence how people thought later. It continues to live somewhere in our musical culture to this day. Uh, and this uh, example of um, intervals um, and uh, uh, thinking in ratios uh, that comes from antiquity is, of course, uh, part of musical culture. Still today, every student of music will learn about this uh, pretty early uh, in their um, career. and But also other things that happened later, they all continued, creating um, a sort of a palimpsest, a sort of a document which has, written, has been written over many, many times and deleted and written over, where if you're paying very, very close attention, you can still see the very first layer of that document and mm-hmm. all the layers that came later after after the first layer. So this is why I continue to say since antiquity, since 19th century, since 1900, since 1950, and so on. And I only stop doing this when I come to the future because <laughs> I, uh, I cannot guarantee that uh, any of that is going to happen or is going to last for any period of time. Yes, and I and certainly unlike the the first section, which is in a sense chronological, even though each chapter is also all the way to the present because of this use of the word since, um, the second section of the book is not. It is much more topical. All right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think also, in a sense, um, what you're doing with this first section, uh, it's not as if you're saying that um, these musical styles went away at all or even got subsumed into later musical styles. It's it's that they inform uh, later musical styles and continue to inform modern music. Is that accurate? Absolutely, yeah. And the and more to the point of the book, the mathematics involved in these musical styles. Uh, I don't even want to. I wanted to use the phrase in the past, but I I can't. <laughs> these mathematical styles that are mathematics that are used in these styles that began in the past are still used are still used today, right? Very good. We're speaking with Dr. Nikita Braginsky about his new book, Mathematical Music from Antiquity to Music AI, published this year, 2022, by Rutledge. Let's talk a bit about how wartime technological advances affected the technology that underlines, I mean, gosh, it it seems to underline practically everything about culture today. Yeah, yeah, that's... uh... 
that's a that's a difficult topic. I I actually kind of uh, say that at one point in the book uh, that um, during World War II, um, the development of the digital computer started. So during the 1940s, the digital computer gradually became reality, and afterwards, uh, it the technology migrated into other areas, uh, first uh, universities and other non-military settings with people who had enough money to buy a a computer, and then later even uh, the private space of people, and now, of course, everybody has multiple computers. Uh, But I don't know if that's uh, correct. So uh, speaking to a historian or being, uh, being interviewed by a historian, I would actually like to hear what you think, Dave, about this, whether this uh, is a valid argument. I think it's a very, it's a very interesting argument. I, I should preface that actually, though, by saying that um, that particular area of history is not my specialty. I am a scholar of race and labor and politics, and in recent months, uh, maybe a little over a year, I have taken on uh, becoming the scholar of the history of music, which is music has always been one of my passions, and now I've made it one of my a part of my professional life, as regular listeners to this channel may have noticed. Um, what I what I tend to think about in terms of how World War II affected the technology of music, I think about um, things like shellac shortages on the home front and how uh, the records um, that were that were used uh, to record music at the time were not able to be produced except in a, in a limited amount for the troops overseas themselves. I think those were called V discs. Um, and then how, in, because of that, because of shortages like that, I think there was also a general musician strike at some point during during World War II, if I recall correctly. Um, but then there seems to be an explosion of technology in the in the immediate post-war years, uh, perhaps because it was held back, uh, almost like a like a tectonic plate that suddenly pushes forward and, and causes an earthquake. Um, the uh, the invention of the long playing record, for instance, uh, is I think nineteen forty nine. And uh, uh, so, so that's sort of the side of, of it that I, I come from. But it's very, very interesting, I think, the argument that you're uh, uh, very hesitantly, but I think, uh, I think without cause, <laughs> uh, I don't think you need to be so hesitant. I think you can be a, a little more, um, uh, 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 well, what's the word, um, um, uh, uh, confident uh, uh, in your in your thesis, in that sense of your thesis, mm-hmm. well, yeah. well, that's a that, that's a small part uh, of the argument. That's uh, ju- just a small note in the book, and um, of course, I, I, I did not uh, come up uh, with that myself. So uh, I've heard this argument uh, in uh, media theory discussions uh, before, uh, but I, uh, I I was just trying to. To think about it more deeply. 
Yeah, it's an it's it's. I think it's a really interesting idea, and it's not just uh, if I if I get away from music for just a moment, um, it's uh, war uh, for all of its horrors uh, historically um, tends to jumpstart scientific advances because of the necessity of winning and surviving uh, among those who are who are in, in the field of making technological advances. And I, I think in, in healthcare, for instance, um, uh, we see a lot of that. But uh, one thing that comes to mind is uh, um, there's a defense agency here in the United States that, well, I guess they, in, they didn't they invent the internet? And they were, <laughs> uh, I think that they were, uh, they were formed during the Vietnam era to help the United States uh, uh, win the war in Vietnam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, uh, yeah. Th th there are, of course, multiple connections between uh, uh, wartime funding for uh, for technology and technological developments. Of course, uh, th and th this is completely unrelated <laughs> to the book itself. But uh, since we're talking in June two thousand. 22, uh, I still need to say that that uh, war is, of course, still a huge, huge uh, tragedy for each and every person uh, affected by it, as, as we currently see what is going on. So this um, should never be forgotten. But uh, <laughs> yeah, what, what if we... Um, uh, what if we talk about some music instead of war? <laughs> <laughs> much, much, much better. Uh, um, uh, the topic of the hour. Uh, so let's return then to uh, another musical topic. I, uh, As I read it, I was fascinated by the role of mathematical music in the foundations of jazz and the Berklee School of Music in Boston in particular. Can you elaborate a bit on how mathematical music affected American popular music in the 20th century? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so this is uh, actually um, a topic that interests me personally very much. Uh, since I have studied for several years already um, a composer who uh, is connected to this whole story. So um, uh, Berkeley is a very well-known uh, college uh, of uh, music in, in Boston, in, in the United States, and for a very long time it was dedicated mostly to popular music. So recently uh, it also includes uh, classical training, but for a very long time since it uh, was uh, founded, it uh, mostly was focused on popular music and jazz. And um, not many people know that um, when it was first uh, created, it was called Schellinger House. Uh, Schellinger, uh, what does it mean? And <laughs> why did this name uh, disappear at some moment? So Joseph Schellinger was uh, an uh, immigrant uh, musician, uh, um, theorist of music also, um, who was born in 
Ukraine, actually, in Kharkov, in this uh, city which has been so tragically destroyed recently. So he was born uh, in Ukraine and uh, later, during Soviet time, was um, a part of a larger group of people who were all very much interested in mathematics and music. And they tried to come up with all kinds of mathematically inspired ideas about how to understand music, how to create it, how to make new instruments or new tunings for instruments and so on. Um, so these people worked at uh, research institutes and Schillinger was, was kind of connected to this whole group. But at some moment he saw that life for people like him is becoming very, very difficult in Soviet Russia as Stalinism was on the rise. And so he um, used his position. Uh, he said he would go abroad to present uh, Soviet music outside of uh, Soviet Russia and to kind of uh, raise the image uh, of the Soviet state through music and went abroad, did that for some time. Let me just uh, interject a, a quick question. Uh, um, Soviet music strikes me as fitting very clearly into the concept of overtly mathematical music. Am, am I wrong in that? Uh, very early 1920s uh, experiments were often about uh, using new kinds of mathematical ideas in music. But at some point, this all had to stop uh, with the rise of the new Stalinist culture of traditionalism. This all had to go away completely and to be forgotten. And people were forgotten and... Uh, uh, tragedies happened in their lives. But he, Schillinger, was able to run away from that. In 1928, he came to New York. And in New York City, living on, uh, uh, on Manhattan, he was able to create a new career for him, teaching mathematical methods to people in popular music or in commercial music, people like radio arrangers and so on. Uh, well, that, that sort of people. And uh, one of the young people whom he taught was the later founder of Berkeley, Lawrence. Burke is the name of this person. So when Schillinger died early, uh, at an early age, uh, Lawrence Burke went to Boston and opened, started the Schillinger House, teaching people uh, all sorts of uh, musical methods, but also some of the mathematical ones. And this continued for some time, over time, the influence of the Schillinger methods and, I would say, highly mathematical methods uh, declined up until the 60s, I would say. But still, at the very, very beginning of the Berkeley, of the famous Berkeley um, institution, 
was uh, this very strange man with his very, very strange uh, mathematical ideas about music. And how does that, uh, how do you think that dovetails with the foundations of jazz uh, or, or popular music writ large at the time? I, I don't write about it uh, in the book, not just uh, because uh, it's a short book, uh, but because um, I do not know if I can substantiate my argument with um, any sort of uh, solid evidence. But I do have an idea about that. So here being uh, uh, in a podcast instead of a book, <laughs> I think I, I can say that. So I believe that improvisation in the jazz specifically, also later in rock music, but in jazz specifically, uh, is is a thing that you learn to do by following certain patterns. And uh, you can learn certain mathematically inspired tricks to create those patterns and to make those patterns happen automatically in your head while you are playing, while you're listening to other musicians and uh, when it's your turn to improvise, uh, you can draw on a couple of small mathematically structured tricks, but also on um, a set of uh, snippets of music that you have in your head that you can use at any moment when it's your time to improvise. You can put them together to create a certain flow, to create a certain atmosphere and the musical idea that you want to create. So, um, and why I specifically talk about improvisation is that when you improvise, you need to be very, very quick in your thinking. You need to think fast, otherwise you'll not be able to provide <laughs> in your head the notes that you're going to play. And uh, Schillinger, when he started teaching his method, he was advertising it all the time as the method to be very, very efficient in the creation of music. So it was advertised uh, to radio uh, um, radio music people for example saying you people who work in the radio will be able to create music in half the time or even faster and this idea of efficiency in the creation of music i believe it is deeply connected to what you need to do when you improvise in jazz, for example, you need to be very efficient. And to be efficient, you need to have some tricks. Uh, and these tricks, if they're mathematical, an example for what I want to say, if you, if you have uh, a melody, uh, a short melody of several notes, a snippet of a melody, you can play it. 
but you can play it starting with a second note and then play it starting with a third note, with a fourth note. This gives you a trick with which you will create uh, more variety in your improvisation. And this idea is actually in a well-known idea, but it's also in a manuscript of Schillinger's, Schillinger's that I've been studying. So this is a, just as a small example of what I think what could be going on behind, well, behind the scenes in musical thinking in jazz with regard to mathematics. And you know, uh, what's, what's so interesting of that, uh, about that, uh, considering how many great jazz and, as you mentioned, rock artists um, consider themselves not well-versed in theory and that they're, they, they talk about doing things by ear uh, uh, learning because they have natural talent. I, I think a lot of what you're talking about happening seems to be going on if it is going on. And I think you're probably right that it is uh, on a subconscious level more than on a conscious level. Absolutely. I, I think so. With music generally, uh, music is a thing that uh, has an audience and has uh the other side, the, the professionals, the professionals who create it, even if they never learned any, had never had any formal training in, in the theory, they're still professionals, mostly, who create it. And uh, professionals mostly draw on some kind of uh, codified knowledge. Even a person who says, I, I never had any training in music, I just play my guitar. Still, <laughs> when this pl person plays the guitar, this person normally plays chords, right? It, uh, it uses symbols to uh, write down the chords that are going to be played. And this person normally uses some sort of uh, formal thinking about the structure in the song, for example, saying, well, this is going to be the intro of the song, this is going to be, you know, the verse and the outro and so on, the bridge, all these things. So people often think they know nothing about theory, but they actually know quite a lot. And... Um, uh, so, yeah, uh, what I actually wanted to say is that, uh, of course, there are people who never produce any music themselves. They only listen to it. But to understand it, they need to have some sort of a grasp on the basics of the musical language that is used. They need to have experience with listening to music and understanding it, understanding the, the mood of it, the devices people use to create this kind of mood and uh, happy music and sad music and uplifting music and so on. And they, uh, sorry, they, they unconsciously kind of recreate the mathematics 
in their head that the, the professionals use consciously. Yeah. Yes. Yes, and I'm also thinking about how some of these professionals who say they don't have any training in any of this, and then uh, when you ask them directly, uh, can you play that instrument? Can you play that instrument over there? How about that instrument? And it turns out that, yes, <laughs> they do actually. You know, you talk to some of these lead singers, for instance, who stand on the front of a stage and don't seem to have any instrument other than their voice. And yet they can they can sit down at the piano and play a few numbers. And uh, maybe they're a drummer or something like that mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so... On this issue of subconscious and conscious, um, let's move into the future. Uh, and uh, let me ask you, what is music AI? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes. So uh, it's the musical use of uh, technologies that we currently call AI. So at this moment, when we're recording this uh, in 2022, when people say AI, they mostly mean uh, machine learning, deep learning. These technologies that became very, very prominent in recent years. And um, this is what I'm talking about in the second uh, part of the book. Um, this kind of AI, but of course we should not forget that there was AI before that. Uh, so it, even in the early decades, people did things with technology in music and they also said, this is AI. This was just another kind of AI. It was based on uh, rules, for the computer that were handcrafted. People used their own understanding of music or talked to an expert and programmed rules, set down and programmed rules. You, the computer, should do that and should never do that. Now, with the new AI, which has become very prominent now, it's no longer really like that. It's more about providing a lot of examples to the computer and still programming the computer, but not saying, telling the computer explicitly to do this and never do this, but instead telling the computer how to extract some information from the big, big, big collection of uh, music. So this is the um, the new musical AI for us, something that's new for us. Um, so for a long time, it wasn't like that. People, of course, already had similar ideas earlier. Even in the 1920s, 100 years ago, when, of course, there was no such thing as a digital computer or whatever, uh, people were already trying to, starting to think about this kind of statistical approach to the, uh, to the corpus of music they were studying. And people were 
counting things by hand. This was, of course, uh, very, very, very slow and frustrating for these people, but this created the foundation for us today. Now we do have the, the computer, uh, and we do have large collections of music in, in a notation which can be fed to the computer. And even, uh, even later emerged the possibility to work around the notation. Maybe I can uh, tell a couple of words on that later. So this is new technologically because it wasn't um, available even a couple of decades ago. But this is not so new conceptually because people were thinking similarly for a long time. So anyway, now we do have these tools, the practical tools we can actually use to feed a lot of snippets of music to the program and say, for example, all these snippets of music were written by Mozart. And then we have a second group of snippets of music and they say, we say they come from MC Hammer. And uh, now the program tries to learn to extract features from, from that material and to try to learn how to differentiate between Mozart and MC Hammer. And with enough uh, resources and time, the program will learn how to do that. Um, yeah, so this is the, the, the basic uh, tool that we now have in our hand, which we can use to differentiate between things. And we can do a lot of, uh, we can do a lot of with this tool. And some of the things that could happen in the future uh, might be great, and some might be not so great. And this is also what I uh, try to think about in some of the uh, some of the subchapters. Can you give us an example of something that might be great and something that might be, as you say, not so great? Um, something that would be great for me, uh, from from my personal point of view, uh, is uh, to give a composer a tool to create um, kind of music with a personality, music with, with some kind of soul in it, music which is performed not mechanically, but with uh, almost a kind of uh, a, a personality in it, as I said. So... Um, I uh, did uh, write music in the past myself and I was always kind of frustrated uh, not only by the fact that uh, I couldn't find uh, <laughs> real people to, to play that music but also by the fact that uh, the program uh, which I used to play this music back to myself, did it very mechanically. 
And I think that, uh, of course, things got better since then, since that time. But I still believe that composers would be happier if they could listen to their arrangements, to their music written for a large ensemble, for example, with a little bit of more soul and uh, personality in it. Now, let me just be clear. When you say soul, um, for the sake of our listeners, uh, you're not talking about what we call soul music with a capital S, which is uh, rhythm and blues, 1970s. Okay. You're talking about soul in terms of that, that human je ne sais quoi that we give to our music when we play it. Right, right. Uh, right, that is exactly, yeah. Thank, thanks for clarifying this. Yes, I, I mean the, the, the human element. And uh, you can kind of fake it with uh, modern AI tools. So this, I think, would be, I think that would actually be kind of great for composers to listen to their arrangements, which they write for for an orchestra or for a large ensemble. They can't uh, play it to themselves on a piano. It's not the same. They need to listen to the piece produced by the orchestra, for example. And, uh, well, having more a more human playback instrument would be great, I think. But of course, uh, there's a, a different side to it, <laughs> and things that uh, will be not so great. And one is very clearly the issue of jobs and uh, job security for musicians and for other people in uh, in jobs related to music overall, of course. Um, but there are even, uh, well, well, different kinds of problems that could arise at some moment. And I can't even uh, begin to uh, enumerate them all. So we, as a larger society, should be thinking about future uses of these technologies in relation to culture so to so that we have an opinion when things happen or when things really start to happen which can be very unexpected uh, and can, so that yeah sorry well so that also we can we can be part of an informed discussion I, I'm thinking of, again, going back to these military uses some years ago, and it's uh, the problem still seems to be happening uh, in these people today. There were some State Department employees in Cuba who were afflicted with some sort of a syndrome that uh, I believe they currently think uh, had to do with sounds that were um, sort of like dog whistles. You can't really hear them consciously, but were being played uh, so that they could hear them in their hotel room and that they did damage to their, uh, or brain damage or, or, or nerve damage or something. Uh, and then uh, if, theoretically, if, if machines could be taught by, um, by, by war, war agencies around the world to do things like this, is that that could, could be another bad example of, or example of how things could be used for ill, uh, right? 
Is that would you yeah. say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't. I think you don't even need any kind of advanced uh, AI to do to do a lot of harm. <laughs> you can do harm with very basic uh, technology. Uh, yeah. Um, um, but there are also other positive things that um, that can happen uh, in relation to music. Uh, for example, uh, it, new, these new technologies could make the life of scholars easier or could enable new tools for scholars which they could use in their work. For example, um, identifying uh, music which is similar in a very large corpus of music, uh, so creating um, links between pieces, uh, showing the similarities, maybe even creating a sort of a, a scale of similarities. For example, uh, imagine you have uh, pieces written by a composer uh, centuries ago. And these pieces have survived somehow, but we don't know much about them. We don't know about when did the composer write these pieces, uh, and so on. And if we assume, for example, that this composer starts as a young person and has this kind of style and then lives for a very long time and at the end of uh, the life has a completely different style, but still the same composer. Uh, and we could try to use... Uh, machine learning, which is very good at seeing uh, similarities and seeing patterns. We could try to create kind of a timeline. You know, I, I'm just dreaming, of course. <laughs> this is not a real uh, research project. I'm just dreaming. But what, what if we were able to create a timeline of uh, pieces assuming that there was a kind of a linear development in the thinking of this composer from the early style to the uh, uh, old age style, later style, and kind of seeing, ah, these pieces could actually belong more to the early years, and then there's this transition or several transitions, and then these pieces are more similar to that. And besides that, uh, beginning in the year so-and-so, they... Uh, begin to be similar to that and that composer who also lived in the same, uh, you know, small town and they probably had conversations with each other and so on. So I'm just dreaming, but this could be a, a, an additional tool for years. Sure. It, it sounds in a sense like just to bring it back over to my field and as we, as we find new ways to learn about history, especially of the distant past, it's another way of, it's like tree rings, the way we use, we use tree rings to, to find out what was happening chemically in the atmosphere at some point in the distant past, because uh, you'll see the rings of the same 
the rings of the trees all over the world or all over a region will have the same markers, the same the same lengths, intervals, if I could use that word again. <laughs> That's fascinating. I, I want to say, though, um, uh, on the one of the negatives that you mentioned was uh, in terms of jobs for musicians. And what, one thing I think on this is, um, and first of all, I, I think as most people will agree, except for a very, very few people, being a professional musician is not a financially rewarding proposition. And it's a hard life and it's a life of, for people who um, are so driven to produce that into the world that they, they usually give up uh, creature comforts. But I think the other thing about, I, I don't actually think that AI necessarily will significantly change the degree to which we want to see live music performed by humans, because I think there is something, when I go, whether I'm seeing a rock concert or a classical concert, and I, I enjoy going to both, um, as I'm sure you do, uh, maybe not rock, but whatever popular music you may also like, um, uh, there's, there's something about the excitement of knowing that those are real people who in some sense that they, they might fail in the moment. Uh, you know, you, when uh, there was a line I read in the New York Times uh, some time ago where the, the writer said, when Luciano Pavarotti opens his mouth, we're not exactly sure what's going to come out. And that's part of the excitement of the, of the performance. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just yeah. my little opinion on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. I was trying to... Uh, I was trying to think about those things and just uh, having a small uh, thought experiment. Uh, suppose we uh, we have uh, uh, suppose we have an AI which uh, uh, creates or some sort of a technological system which also includes this new technology of, of AI and maybe also some sort of older technologies. So we have this technological system which is able to create so many variations of, uh, say, uh, a pop song that every single person who buys a record will get a personalized version of the song. Um, I, I, I also put that uh, in, in the chapter in the book. But uh, so in this small thought experiment, I was thinking, okay, now we have like millions of different versions of this song and many people like it, many, many people buy it also because it's kind of tailored towards their wishes and needs. But what about a concert? Would all these people ever gather for a concert uh, by uh, by this uh, singer, for example, or or this uh, I don't know team? Uh, uh, the, maybe it's a celebrity who started uh, as a kind of a traditional uh, person in in the music business, and then. Uh, thought, okay, great, uh, then we'll just use this uh, technology to create individualized uh, recordings for everybody. So this celebrity is going to give a concert now. But what is going to be performed? Everybody expects 
their own <laughs> personalized version of the song. Uh, so uh, what what should the, the, this uh, celebrity or maybe even former celebrity perform in concert? That's a problem. And even how to behave... Um, how to behave, how to present themselves to the audience, what kind of an image uh, should the celebrity project uh, because uh, this one person expe expects uh, more of, uh, I don't know, pop uh, appeal and this kind of person expects some sort of rock or whatever and the third person expects a little bit of, uh, I don't know, jazzy influence in it. So this creates all these crazy problems uh, that, yeah, uh, that only start to appear once you really start to use the technology, right? You can think about it in advance, but we, we all know that when you have the tool in your hand and you start to use it only at this point, moment you see all the all the possibilities but also all the problems that uh, you need to deal that unexpectedly yes yes fascinating truly um the book is mathematical music from antiquity to music ai dr nikita braginsky what are you working on now uh so um after finishing uh, this book, um, I um, was thinking about future research projects, and the third and the the, the research project that is emerging now uh, on the horizon for me is to look at um, how the thinking tools of humans the musical theory might change as a result of people having um, had first had experience with AI tools. So what I mean is that uh, music professionals use certain um, concepts from musical theory, which they have learned somewhere, and these concepts mostly have emerged long time ago and they have been given from generation to generation. And all these concepts have been optimized, I would say, for human use. Now we have this uh, opponent the, the music AI, the, the technologies, the new technologies. And we start to have first-hand experience with them in several areas. For example, music is recommended to us uh, on whatever streaming platform people are using, using uh, data that we give to the system and uh, also among others, the machine learning, the deep learning tools that process this data to create recommendations. But also, it could happen that increasingly um, such tools would be used to produce music, 
or to select music uh, for pr presentation and selling. So we will all have more and more first-hand experience with those kinds of tools. But also, of course, not only in music itself, but elsewhere, in automatic translation and uh, many different fields, uh, subtitles, uh, um, captions, and so on. Uh, so after having had this first-hand experience with the new technology, I'm sure there must be some kind of change in people's thinking. And why I think there will be change is that because music theory has continuously changed over time. It... Um, my assumption is that it changed because technologies around music changed too. So, for example, when at the end of the 19th century the possibility emerged to have a real recording of music. So, before that, there was no way to, to create a, a real recording of a real performance. And then, at some moment, you could do that. Or when in 20th century, the possibility emerges to create visualizations of uh, audio recordings and to see to see the, 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 the tones, the rhythm. When all these things emerge, people need to think again about their musical theory. They need to think again, is this still the right tool that we're using? Do we need to adapt it somehow? Because we know through this technology that things are this way and not that way, and so on. Um, so, yeah, just a small example. Uh, at some point, people understood that uh, people use a lot of variation in, in the pitch and in the, in the height of the note. It's not like with the piano, it's this note and it jumps to the next note. When people sing, when people use other kinds of instruments that allow this, like a violin, there's always a lot of variation, vibrato, and so on. And you can see it very clearly with the new tools that emerged in the 20th century. Before that, people weren't able to see that. And if you see that, you need to think twice about your musical theory. Is this still the right tool? Do, how, how do I adapt it to explain all these things? And so I believe after we have all collected experience with AI tools, musical thinking will change. And with my next project, I want to look at how exactly things might change again to prepare for change, to, to be prepared, to think about possible upcoming difficulties, but also uh, opportunities. How exciting. Uh, once again, the book is Mathematical Music from Antiquity to Music AI, available now, 2022, from Rutledge, part of the Taylor and Francis group. Dr. Nikita Braginsky, I cannot tell you how, uh, how much I have enjoyed this conversation, and I would like to thank you once again for participating on New Books Network. 
Thank you. Thank you for, uh, for this conversation. I enjoyed it very much.